Hey there, you're listening to episode 30 of the Finish Line Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. During this episode, you'll get to hear from John Mark Eager, the Executive Director of the Mailbox Club. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Cody Hobelman, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Keelan. On today's show, we have John Mark Eager joining us from the Mailbox Club. John Mark's parents founded the Mailbox Club in 1965, and he joined the organization in 1990, now serving as executive director. The Mailbox Club aims to bring children to Christ and disciple them using a variety of printed and digital resources and a vast network of volunteers. The Mailbox Club already reaches millions of children each year in nearly 80 nations worldwide, but John Mark explains in this interview that the opportunity is much greater. Stay tuned to hear stories from the field and learn all about the incredible work that God is doing through the Mailbox Club. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind you guys that everything we do here on the Finish Line team is 100% free and always will be. If you're getting a lot out of this podcast and want to help us get the message to others, The best thing you can do for us right now is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you're the first to know when new episodes come out. And with that, let's get started. All right, so we're joined tonight by John Mark Eager. John Mark, thank you so much for joining us. My privilege. Thank you for your ministry. So I was hoping you could kick us off with telling us a little bit about yourself and your background. All right. I was born into a great family. My mom and dad were missionaries. They founded the Mailbox Club Ministry in 1965. Prior to that, my dad was an evangelist, a great evangelist going into the schools in Georgia, Alabama, and Florida. And he realized early on that he needed discipleship materials. And over time, he and a team of people developed Mailbox Club lessons to follow up kids being reached in the schools. They would mail them Bible lessons. The children and young people could fill out the lessons and mail them back in. And so the Mailbox Club was officially formed in 1965. And so really started in our home and there were great parents. And the thing about my mom and dad is they lived it. And my father, I've never seen anybody seek the Lord like my dad did. My dad would spend, you know, an hour in the morning in prayer and devotion and and really getting to know God and understand understanding the Word of God. And I think that's one of the secrets to the Mailbox Club, the team of godly people whose shoulders, you know, I and the team right now stand. We're very, very blessed. But I came to faith in Christ as a child. I was eight years old, knelt with my mom and and prayed to receive Christ. And, you know, I went through a little bit of rebellion. But when I was in high school at a boarding school in North Carolina, we had a great revival come, changed my life. I learned to have a daily quiet time and to spend time with the Lord. It wasn't something people guilt tripped me into, something I wanted to do. And the Lord just started changing my life. I started growing in leaps and bounds. And somewhere along in there, I just surrendered my life to Christ and felt a, a call to serve Him. And I wasn't sure what to do. Kicked around in college for a little bit, ended up at the University of Georgia, studied ag engineering got out and learned civil engineering and became licensed as a civil engineer. I was sort of climbing the corporate ladder and a friend of mine invited me in 1989, probably before you guys were even born 
invited me on a mission trip to Poland. And Poland at the time was still communist. And we went on an evangelistic trip to Poland. And it was life-changing to me. We were were literally evangelizing on the streets. And just anybody that we could talk to, we'd sit down and just share the Lord with them. And there was such a hunger and openness I saw in Eastern Europe, unlike the Bible Belt where I'm from, where, you know, everybody's a Christian type thing. It was mind-boggling how open people were and how hungry they were. So when I went back to my job, it just didn't look the same. The engineering job just didn't look the same. And, I mean, I I realized I could make a million dollars. So what? I mean, what does it matter? And if I live for that and I just had a burden to live for the Lord and do something for Him, and I wasn't sure what to do, and, and so I went to seminary, and while I was in seminary, my dad would go, they remained close partners with Child Evangelism Fellowship. And my dad, my mom and dad would go to the international conference every three years with Child Evangelism Fellowship. And so my, my parents were at Ridgecrest in North Carolina in 1990. The leader of Child Evangelism Fellowship and my dad got together and they kind of made a plan for my life. And my father heard Sam just talking about all the changes in Eastern Europe. This was in 1990 as communism had fallen like dominoes across Eastern Europe. And and my dad was just electrified and so excited. And so he and Sam got together and, and my dad called me in seminary and said, you've got to come up and meet Sam. And so I drove up there. And to make a long story short, Sam Dockerty, the leader of Child Evangelism Fellowship at the time, invited me to come and help develop a discipleship program for Eastern Europe with CEF using Melbourne Club. So I was, I think, 29 at the time. And so the first, for the first time in my life, this ministry that I'd grown up with and the heart God had given me for missions intersected for the first time. And so I went through the CEF training program in Europe and I began working with CEF in Eastern Europe and loved it. Early 90s in Eastern Europe was like going back in time 100 years. It was like there were horse and buggies on the roads, and gypsies and wagons and hardly any food in the stores. And to make a long story short, we helped them for a number of years. We still helped Child Evangelism Fellowship and loved working with them in Eastern Europe. Some of the most godly people I know, and I've just been blessed to work with them and we began helping them then and later in North Africa and in Latin America, just coming along side child evangelism fellowship, helping them with the discipleship materials. Then the Lord connected us with Samaritan's Purse in 1999 and their shoebox ministry. And we began helping them in one country and it grew to where, Three million of the eight million kids getting shoeboxes were given the opportunity to receive long-term discipleship with the Melbox Club. And oh, by the way, right in the middle of all that, we learned from Samaritan's Purse that God had a better distribution than the postal system because the postal system doesn't work in a lot of countries or a family making a hundred bucks a month, they're not going to pay a dollar on a stamp. And so we began following the exact same network they had, and that was the body of Christ, churches. They partnered with churches to distribute the shoeboxes. Well, we came in behind and rode on their coattails, and we, we helped train and equip the churches to disciple kids. And so that that's what we do in a nutshell. That's the secret sauce. I'll gladly share it with the world because there's 
two billion kids in the world, and we'll never be able to reach them all. So if everybody copies us, that's great. We'll share our recipe and let people, you know, find out about it. But Samaritan's Purse, Child Evangelism Fellowship, those ministries have helped us so much, and we've partnered with them for many years. And the Lord is just taking a little ministry on a farm in South Georgia and taking it beyond imagination. I'll tell you more about something that even came up last week in Afghanistan, but that's a long answer to your question. My parents never dreamed the ministry would go beyond their outreach to kids in in the Southeast and God spread it around the country. And then I got started in Eastern Europe and I had no expectation beyond Eastern Europe, but God did the same thing and just multiplied it. And, there are literally almost 2 billion kids in the world, and we're, we're barely scratching the surface. Last year, we had almost 4.5 million kids. We believe in this decade we can grow to 8 or 10 million kids a year being evangelized and discipled, but that's a drop in the bucket. Wow, that is a pretty impressive history. I'm wondering if you could take a step back for a second, and just for those people that have not heard of the Mailbox Club and are trying to get an idea for exactly what you guys do, if you could just kind of break down what your mission is in the life of a child and the approach that you guys take towards discipleship? The approach we take is to equip believers around the world, churches and believers around the world, to evangelize and disciple children. We do not teach them to just grab kids and you know get them to pray a prayer. Our approach is very much systematic in our main course, starting with the attributes of God, creation, the fall, the promised Savior, the resurrection, personal sin, how to become a child of God, and we lay out steps to salvation. Then we move on into discipleship and teaching children how to pray, how to confess their sins, how to live the Spirit-filled life, how to die to self and let Christ live on the throne of your hearts. And that's what we do. Last year, we partnered with over 60,000 churches, had over half a million volunteers involved. We have a handful of staff. The numbers make no sense but God. It, it literally is like the feeding of the 5,000. If you take God out of the, Jesus out of the story of the feeding of the 5,000, there's no way. <laughs> so we had a staff of hopefully at the end of this year, 125 people, but over half a million volunteers. It, it, it makes no sense but God. And so equipping and serving the church around the world is our, our passion. We love to operate below the radar and serve them. And that's that's just pivotal. Yeah, I'd love if you could just explain how you decided or how your father originally decided to focus on educating children about the gospel and about Jesus. That is a great question. My dad was a great man. He really was. He was one of these World War II heroes. He graduated from Georgia Tech got married and joined the Navy in 1942. He was in the worst, by the fall of 1942, he was in the worst naval battle in the Pacific. That's less than a year after Pearl Harbor. So he was one of those kind of guys. When my dad was a child, there was a great evangelist come to Valdosta named Gypsy Smith. He was famous at the time. He was kind of a peer to Dwight L. Moody, D.L. Moody. And my dad was up in the balcony, literally with his nanny. That's how it was in the Deep South. He had somebody taking care of you during the day, and he was in in the balcony. And Gypsy Smith preached the gospel. And my dad went down expecting everybody in the church to be there, but he was the only one there. And they didn't know what to do with him. They didn't know what to do 
with a child and he went home and wept and he knows he wasn't safe then, but he, he felt like God, you know, put his hand upon him and protected him. And so then, you know, was in the war and everything like that and, and had a family started and, and he was living here in South Georgia. He was church going, he was a deacon, he was good, morally good, but he was a hundred percent lost. And through tragedy, two big events, the Gypsy Smith event as a child. And then I had an older brother who was killed in an accident on the farm and I never knew him, but it was really through that tragedy that my mom and dad came to faith in Christ. And so I think that was those two events in his life were pivotal to focusing him on children and starting this outreach to children and young people. And he had godly people mentor him and a gentleman from Michigan began to pour his life into him and disciple my dad and show my dad how to have a school ministry. This is something like the people in their twenties don't even know what that is because it's no longer, it hadn't been allowed for so long. But back in the fifties and sixties and seventies, we had assembly programs and the pledge of allegiance and prayer before school type thing. And so my dad you know, started the school ministry and eventually realized the need for follow-up. And, and so that's where, you know, the focus on children came in. And by the way, in the, in the 90s, when I, mid-90s, when I was really getting going with the ministry, I had gotten pulled into the orphanage ministry in Romania, and my dad had gotten into sex ed books, and all that's good. But back in the mid-90s, we began to sharpen our focus and realize that by probably about 98 focused on back to children because so few, few people are reaching children. So to me, the why reach children is more important than the how. The why reach them because, hey, first of all, Jesus commanded us to let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And so Jesus commanded us to children are the greatest harvest field in the world. They're the most responsive to the gospel. Adults become proud from success or bitter from hardships they've faced. And so it's very difficult for a lot of adults to bend the knee and become like a child and, and receive Christ. Children, I believe, are the most unreached people group in the world in that Probably 80, I think I've seen 80 to 85% of the church resources go toward everything but children's ministries. So it makes no sense to me. You know, you would think you'd pour your resources into the most fruitful harvest field, but, you know, we're, and I'm not opposed to ministry to college kids or old folks and everybody in between, but man, the most fruitful harvest field are children. And children, if one to Christ and properly discipled can lead long, fruitful lives for Christ. And we know of so many people that have lived for Jesus for decades. And that's another reason But children make great missionaries right now. We find all over the world when you lead children to Christ, their families see the change in their lives. And we, frankly, we have digital lessons. But we love the paper lessons when we can because the readership is oftentimes, you know, multiple people read the literature. And you see parents and siblings and friends come to know the Lord. And then finally, children are the future of every nation in the world. And so we're crazy not to be investing heavily into children and young people. 
Yeah, you certainly make a strong point for pouring our resources into children. You know, if we're really thinking about how do we effectively manage God's wealth, I think that you're absolutely right. There is a huge harvest field in children whose hearts are open to the gospel. I mean, I see it in my own kids. Just It's a totally different experience than talking to an adult and a totally different conversation and, and an openness. So I think that you're right on in what you're saying. I was wondering, just to get a little bit more into what the ministry looks like from the inside, could you just walk us through maybe like what a child in, in Eastern Europe or Africa is experiencing on their end from being a part of, of what you guys are doing, how the local church is playing into that and what exactly they're going through on a, on a weekly basis, that sort of thing? Yeah, it varies so much around the world. And what we do is we train leaders and tell them everything we know. And, and we, it, but we also hopefully tell them, you're smart, you're godly, you figure out how to make it work in your country. So there is very much a, we want ownership, local ownership, because outreach in Cuba is different than outreach in Russia, which is different than Afghanistan, for example. And I'd love to tell you a little bit about that, but it looks a little different in various countries. And probably what has happened that has literally turned our ministry upside down is, is decentralizing the ministry and giving ownership at the local level. And humanly, ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit that empowers people to figure it out and make it work in their country. So I'll just tell you kind of a few stories to give you an idea how things are different. You know, in a lot of the countries in Africa, for example, sub-Saharan Africa, they have open doors in the in the schools. They have required religious education. We can step in and literally teach in a public school in Kimberley, South Africa, where I've been before. Open doors in the public schools is mind-boggling. We also, you know, equip churches. We, we provide these materials for them. They can use them in their Sunday school classes or Sunday night or Wednesday night or whenever. In India, we work with a partner who really harnessed an old Billy Graham network called My Hope India, whereby churches train up believers inside their church to open their homes and invite children into their homes. So this year, we're trying to train up and we're trying to partner with 80,000 churches in India who on average will open, will partner with five church members. That's 400,000 homes who invite four or five children on a regular basis to come into their home and do a Bible study. That potentially is 1.8 to 2 million children. We didn't dream this up in Valdosta. I'm, I'm you know, just kind of a plain old guy. This is God doing this, okay? This is mind-boggling how, what they're doing. And we're just here to serve them and provide resources and help them get the job done. In fact, we just wired $200,000 to India last week for this program. Pakistan is another country that, that's very, very restrictive. And what our partners have developed there is a courier system. This is really cool. They collect the lessons they bring them back to a location, they grade them, then they take them back. It's a courier. I think they have 20-something couriers. People in these countries, this is what's been earth-shaking for us. There are godly people 
indigenous believers in these countries that just simply need training, encouragement, and resources. I don't know how to operate in Pakistan. I don't know how to operate in India. But I don't have to figure that out. All I have to figure out is my role is, is to serve and equip, like Ephesians 4 talks about, serve and equip the body. But I can tell you stories literally all over the world that do it differently. We've been invited by the Ministry of Education in South Sudan to provide Bible lessons for 3 million school kids. 3 million kids. It is, it's just unbelievable doors like this open, opening up to our ministry. And I don't make this stuff up. It's just God brings it to us. And so I know I gave a complicated answer to your question, Keelan, but it, it looks different in various countries because it's indigenous. It's gone viral. It's organic, which is beautiful. There's no better way for it to happen than for it to take root at the local level for local ownership. Yeah, absolutely. And that is a theme that we have seen over and over through this podcast is that where the gospel is able to take root on a local indigenous level, and that is where the true ownership is of the gospel and of reaching the community, that is where things really take fire. And it sounds like that's exactly what you guys have seen in your experience. Yeah, it's exactly what we've seen. I'm interested to tell you about Afghanistan, so we'll come to that whenever you hit that button. But it is mind-boggling how God's opened up a brand new door. And literally, we have five projects going on right now, including the Afghanistan project, which is really neat that we didn't do this last week. Because this just happened Friday. But this is now the fifth opportunity we have that involve a million plus kids. We've got the India thing. We've got the South Sudan thing. With The whole team in Sub-Saharan Africa is, is trying to reach 1.8 million kids this year. By the way, back to Sub-Saharan Africa, you kind of asked what does it look like at the local level. The team in Sub-Saharan Africa, they are pushing us beyond the field pushes us. The field pushes John Mark. It's not John Mark cracking a whip and I got to get this done for the board. It's none of that. It's they're pushing us. The field drives a lot of this, and that's exciting because that's God ultimately driving it. But the team in Sub-Saharan Africa, they want to grow to the number we were at last year. By the end of 2030, they want to reach 4.5 million kids being reached annually in Sub-Saharan Africa. Wow. And that number, they've intersected that number as 1% of the projected population by the year 2030. Africa is projected to grow like wildfire. They're soon going to become the youngest population on Earth of any continent is what is being projected. And so the team there is way out ahead of the ball game, and they've developed a brilliant program of discipling young people four to six to eight years. But what they've realized, this will excite you, what they've realized is that if they want to get to 4.5 million kids, and let's just say that it's a one to 30 ratio, teacher to student ratio, you know, there's a gigantic number of people that need to be trained and they realize they're not enough adults to do it. So what they started doing is identifying young people that have been discipled for four to six to eight years who have leadership potential and plugging them back into the equation to let them be youth mentors. Let them, why can't they go help? Why can't they go teach 
five and six year old kids and disciple them. And it is they had six to seven thousand young people doing this last year. Wow. You know, in America, our kids, even in our best churches, are often just spectators. They're not in the game. And so they don't ever really learn how to participate and be mobilized and engaged in missions. And that's a whole other story we're building a next-gen ministry in America. But the team in Sub-Saharan Africa, they inspire me. They push me. They, they're pushing this organization. But it looks different in different countries because we've, we've let go of it. And we've let God just take it where he wants to. It's the same. We haven't changed the gospel. We've done very little to even make the materials contextualize it because it's just a simple gospel presentation, discipleship program, and just doesn't need a lot of misogyny, but the locals just take it and run with it. Well, John Mark, since you mentioned it, I find it so interesting that organizations like the Mailbox Club can be used by God to adapt around all kinds of circumstances going on in the world. We had a global pandemic going on last year, and it's still going on, and now the new development in Afghanistan that's on the news headlines so I was hoping you could share a little bit more about how you are able to adapt and, and what work you're doing as recently as last week in Afghanistan. Yeah, the news has just been so depressing about Afghanistan just week after week after week. And you feel so helpless. You just wonder what you can do. And a ministry partner that we've been working with, and I'm going to not disclose the ministry because they're, we don't want to put a target on them. But we've been partnering with them for a number of years in the heart of the Muslim world, and they're doing a brilliant job. They're way more believers in underground house churches. They're called Muslim background believers, first-generation believers who have come to faith in Christ. They don't want to leave and go to Europe or America because they want to win their families and their loved ones and their communities for Christ. And they're followers of Jesus. They may go to a, a mosque. But when they're praying, they're praying to Jesus Christ. They're praying in His name. And so we have been on a mission for probably five years to equip and serve that network. Because many of them, are well, as first-generation Christians, they don't know what to do with their children. They've not been taught to disciple their own children like you're doing, Keelan, with yours. And hopefully soon, Cody will be doing with yours. They don't know what to do with them. And so we've been serving and equipping them. And last year working in, in the heart of the Muslim world, they reported over 800,000 students enrolled and mind-boggling numbers. And it reminds me of when Jesus told Peter the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. And so, you know, as the news has unfolded the past month, it's it's been awful to watch. And, and we hear stories of people being martyred. It's just awful. And we know that this is looking like pre-9-11. And my friend, even his network, last I heard, almost 40 people in the network have been martyred for the cause of Christ. So this is very, very real. We had a Zoom call Friday with him, and he didn't want it recorded. He doesn't want a target on his head, but he shared as far as children go. He's involved in all kinds of humanitarian relief right now in Afghanistan and helping believers. But his ministry has a a mantra to run to chaos, don't run away from it. But as far as children goes, what he shared was thrilling. They're rescuing children right now. They found recently 50 kids in a cave being cared for by two 
like widow ladies, they are trying to get children released from the Taliban and placed in Christian families. He shared, and he has told me this before, that the untold story behind radical Islam is they abduct, kidnap, take children, and they put them in jihad camps. The children are abused physically and sexually. And frankly, that in their warped minds is the making of a good terrorist. It is literally John 10.10. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. And many, many children, probably thousands of children, are being abducted and placed in jihad camps and brainwashed and trained to be jihadist. What's happened is, I don't know how many adults have come to know the Lord out of jihad camps. They've come to know, radically been saved. And as they've been discipled, my friend asked, what was your day job? And they said, abducting children. And so he's challenged them to reverse engineer their thinking and how can you go back the other way and help rescue children? And so what he shared the other day on the phone is we have an opportunity right now to reach 100,000 children in Afghanistan with these Christ-centered Bible lessons. But what he wants to do is provide these Bible lessons to about 10,000 families. Families over there are very big. Families there may have eight to 10. If they're, if they're a little skinny family like our family with just five kids, they'll give five more you know, the rescue kids to the eager family. And so you'll have a family of eight or 10, and we want to provide at least one set of Bible lessons per family and let the families do the discipleship. And frankly, I don't know that there is a better strategy than to train and equip families because, Keelan, you're the primary one to disciple your children, really more so than your church. And so I love this model in Afghanistan. I was so excited. I've been doing this a long time. And Friday was one of the most exhilarating phone calls I've been a part of. But my friend actually wants through his network, if this pilot program goes well in October, by the end of the year, we want to launch, we want to launch into half a million to a million kids. And that really excited. I mean, I, I didn't even hear the half a million part. Once he throws numbers out, I want the high number. Why not? Can you imagine if a million kids were radicalized for Jesus in Afghanistan? You know, it's just like God to do something the U.S. government and military could not do. You cannot force. We know this after 20 brutal years and many, many fatalities, billions of dollars, probably trillions. You cannot force a democracy on one of these strict Muslim countries. But if a million kids and families are turned on to Jesus, then a nation can change. It's been really dismal, but I'm encouraged. I'm seeing signs that maybe this could be the greatest harvest field ever for the Afghan people, because not only what I just shared with you about what we want to do in Afghanistan, but as Afghans move around the world into refugee camps, we can run to them and help them. Sure, they'll need food and water and shelter, but they need Christ. They need the gospel. They need freedom from all this bondage. A friend of mine, a dear friend of mine is a missionary in India, and I knew 100,000 refugees were moving there, 
And I've since found out he told me about 200,000 Afghan refugees are moving there. And I asked him, we weren't like this. He's the partner with the My Hope India Network and, and the two million. Is, I asked him, I don't remember when it was, two Fridays ago, if he could help us get a translation. He said he's already he's already on it. He was a week ahead of me. We're getting the materials translated into Pashti. We already have Farsi. We have Uzbek. They have an Uzbek minority in northern Afghanistan. So I knew that working in refugee camps would be an opportunity, but I didn't know until last Friday we had this enormous, this golden opportunity inside Afghanistan. And it's not either or, let's do both. This could literally be the greatest harvest of Afghan people ever. And if the church will wake up and jump on this opportunity, because you know when people are displaced and put in refugee camps, they're they're open, they're hungry, they're searching. And now's the time for the church to jump on top of aiding and loving and serving and caring for and bringing the gospel to refugee communities around the world as they're set up. But I cannot begin to tell you how excited I am about the opportunity inside Afghanistan. But I'm pumped up about it. This is what you come to work for right here. It's what you dream of. And if this were the only thing we had going on, I'd be pumped up. But God just keeps sending these opportunities, and it's all to His glory. The cool thing, He keeps providing, too. It's amazing. Well, John Mark, I was looking through the 2020 annual report, and I noticed a statistic that kind of blows my mind. It's that it was 97 cents to disciple a child. And it's more than delivering a pamphlet or a brochure. It's actually discipling these children over time with multiple lessons. And I was hoping you could just explain a little bit more about what that process looks like and how you're able to do it for such an incredibly low cost. Okay, I'm sharing all our secrets because I hope I hope others will copy and it'll multiply the kingdom. So if you take half a million volunteers and if you paid them $2 an hour and they work 40 hours a year, just one week a year for reaching kids, that's $40 million that we don't have to pay. So that's secret number one. It's serving and equipping and training and Letting it go now. We do require accountability on the finances. We require accountability on reporting, but we're not mean. You know, we're not going to hit anybody over the head or anything like that. If they want more materials, they better report. It's about like that. It's just gentle accountability because we're stewards. At the end of the day, we're stewards of, of the resources God puts in our hands. And I take that really seriously. For whatever reason, God's wired me that way. God's just wired me to have a sense of accountability to our donors, but more importantly, to God. And so the beauty of what God has done is multiplied our resources beyond imagination is the equipping of, of the saints of the churches around the world. The second thing that I would point to, we have a dear friend in Northern Ireland, a Christian printer, who he doesn't print all of our materials, but he's going to save us this year, I'm going to guess, I think between a million and a million and a quarter dollars. He prints as a ministry. He saves us so much money. It's unbelievable. He's a good guy. Northern Ireland, they have a lot of Protestants, a lot of Christians. And he cut our cost from 80 cents per child 
including the teacher's materials, prorated. He cut it from 80 cents down to 25, and then he raises half the money. So, I mean, you can't beat that. And so we send him as much as we can to where we almost shut his printing operations (laughs) down. Then we just stop, and then we go print everywhere else we can. We do have digital materials. We have lessons that can be done via email, online. But I tell you, there's nothing like a mentor in a room saying, hey, Johnny, where were you last week? We miss seeing you. Let me get you get caught up. You know, there's nothing like that personal one-on-one discipleship or maybe 50 to one or 40 to one, but there's nothing like a real teacher pouring their lives into real kids. And I mean, you can think back to the Sunday school teachers you had and the people in, you know, the youth group that invested in your life. And those are the heroes to our model. I know nobody can see this, but that lady right there Uh in South Sudan, she's in a room with probably at most 15 by 15, 15 feet by 15 feet. I counted about 72 yeah, kids wow. in that room. He's the hero to our model. That's the secret right there. How do we train? How do we serve her better year after year? I also saw looking through a lot of your materials that you guys have leaders and teachers as part of your volunteer yes. model. Can you tell us a little bit about the role that each of those play and, and how that all fits together? Yeah. Like a friend of mine says, we're like Amway without the soap. <laughs> What we have is regional leaders and then sub-regional leaders or what we call area coordinators. So in Sub-Saharan Africa, we've divided it into, we have four sub-regions. And underneath them, we have country coordinators. And then underneath them, we have all kinds of volunteers. That's the structure and basically the chain of command. By the way, one really neat thing that we learned is to partner with indigenous believers. We moved away from thinking we had to have all American missionaries all over the world, and there's nothing wrong with it. We just found out that to send an American couple to Thailand is going to take about hundred grand a year. It's going to take them about five years to learn the language. For the same money, we can engage godly people, train them, equip them, turn them loose, and they go to work tomorrow, not five years from now. And for the same $100,000, probably you can have 20 or more on your team. So our team, hopefully by the end of the year, we have around 125 people. And we're projecting over 100 of them will be national. Wow, yeah. Nationals. So frankly, my biggest concern staff-wise is not the international team. We got to, we got to build a feeder program so that down the road, we're still strong domestically so that we can keep serving them. I know you mentioned it earlier, but could you explain a little more about how you partner with other organizations? I saw a number of them listed on your website there. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. We do love to work with anybody that loves Jesus and loves children. And I've actually had a run on people tossing potential partnerships at me lately and We've got a big annual banquet coming up at the end of the month, so it's gotten a little little bit crazy. But we do love to kind of kick the tires and, and see if a potential partnership is a fit, and not not everyone is a fit. And it doesn't mean the other ministry isn't a great ministry. It's just maybe not a fit. One partnership that we've had now for 
I think over 10 years is with Evangelism Explosion. Great ministry. The head of Evangelism Explosion is a dear friend of mine. He's just a, a prince of a guy named John Sorensen. They've only had two presidents. They had D. James Kennedy and John Sorensen. They've been around about 60 years, and they're a great ministry. And they have an outreach called Hope for Kids in which they're training children to become evangelists for life. And a mutual donor friend of ours connected us because he wanted to see the discipleship component kick in. And so, you know, now we're coming alongside and and basically, hopefully adding value to everything Evangelism Explosion is doing with children. They've got a great program teaching kids how to witness to their friends and on-the-job training and go how to go out and witness and actually do it, on-the-job training, go out and do it. But, you know, to also come in and help them learn to have an ongoing daily walk with Christ and to live for Him and to be discipled. The two have worked beautifully together, and this year we're trying to reach a million kids just within that Evangelism Explosion Partnership, working in 30 to 40 countries and hopefully growing that partnership dramatically. But that's just one example of coming in and partnering with a U.S. ministry. And by the way, we partner with a lot of indigenous ministries that, you know, that'll never make the cover of Christianity today or anything like that. But they're they're in the trenches, they're local, they're indigenous, and we partner with many of them as well. And it's the same thing. It's coming in and helping add value to what they do. And, you know, frankly, we, we want them to look good and we're happy to be a silent partner. Do you find that with a lot of your partners? the organizations you're working with have a really strong focus on evangelism and you guys come in and basically add the discipleship and the long-term training and relationship side to the network and stuff that they're already using. Keelan, you need to come and work for (laughs) Mailbox Club. I couldn't have said that any better. That's exactly what we do. We come in behind big evangelism ministries and serve them with discipleship. Thank you. You put the words right in my mouth. We've helped Jesus now. We've done a little bit with compassion. We had a beautiful partnership for many years with Operation Christmas Child. We love to come in behind an organization that's got a big evangelism presence and partner with them in the long-term discipleship. I was wondering, because we made this connection through ROI Ministry. You're listed as, as one of their top 10, and I see the Charity Navigator and a number of other awards on your site regarding financial accountability and and a number of different things that you are focused on. And I was wondering if you could explain why that's so important to you and if that also seems to be important to donors. Well, it's really important to me. It's very important to donors. I think Jesus talked a lot about money, talked a lot about accountability. The parable of the talents comes to mind and you know, to whom much is given, much is required. And I think that applies to every Christian in America. We've all been given a lot. And so my theology is deeply rooted, of course, in the Word of God. And I've just somehow, God has helped me understand a long time ago, over 20 years ago, that it's great to get a big gift from a donor. And I'm thrilled but there's something like a mental hourglass that turns over my mind that, you know, in a year I'm going to give an account to that donor. He doesn't have to ask me. I know it's the right thing to do to be accountable. 
and to tell them what we did with their money and to thank them for what they did. And so, I mean, ultimately I'm accountable to God, but I feel that accountability to donors. And we've been so blessed to partner with ROI Ministries. Those guys, they're fun. They love us. They throw partnership opportunities our way. They've helped us, you know, figure out the metrics that you talked about, the cost per child. McClellan Foundation in Chattanooga has also been very helpful helping me. I'm an engineer. I mean, can you imagine how much I learned at University of Georgia Ag Engineer? <laughs> Ag engineering program about fundraising, strategic planning, how to do a board. I mean, zero. And so ministries have helped us and organizations like the McClellan Foundation, ROI Ministries, they've, they've helped us get our act together, frankly. And yeah, donors like to know that if they give $50,000, that God will take that through this simple yet very complicated game plan and allow us to reach potentially 50,000 children in Afghanistan. And the costs were closer to $2 a child until, you know, the combination of all these volunteers bringing the cost down and then our printer in Northern Ireland helping bring the cost down. Those are God things that I'm not smart enough to figure out. But this is what God's done to bring the cost down. And, And the reason is simple, so we can reach more kids for Christ. I mean, you know, the savings that the printer in Northern Ireland, the, the one and a quarter million dollars savings, you know, we don't fly to the Bahamas and go fishing for a week. We plow that into reaching more kids for Jesus. Oh, by the way, that doesn't even show up in our financials. His savings doesn't show up in terms of dollars because it's a gift and kind contribution from another country. But it's so significant, we show it in our 990s. We just kind of, we do a footnote because it is a giant gift and kind contribution from another country that is worthy of being noted. Yeah. As we're coming up to the end of our time, I did have one question that I was curious that I didn't get to ask earlier. What's the age range of the children that you work with? And what have you guys seen in terms of when children are really able to kind of grasp the gospel and, and you know, grapple with the kind of material that you guys are providing to the churches you work with? We have Bible lessons for children starting at four or five years old, going all the way up through teenage years. We even have lessons for adults and senior citizens. Again, I'm all for reaching someone in the nursing home. I don't want anyone to think I'm not for reaching anybody that God brings across your, your paths. But the most fruitful harvest field is children. It's just undeniable. People talk about the 414 window, which is not a geographic location, but an age 4 to 14 is a great age. My personal opinion is most kids come to know Christ, most young people in the 8 to 14 range. I think they can really understand the gospel and respond at that age right in that window. By the way, Josh McDowell has become a good friend to me in this ministry. He came here, spoke at a banquet a number of years ago. He loves the Melbox Club. And he came and spoke, and he said the old Barna statistic, that if you don't reach a young person by the time they're 18 years old, that the chances go down dramatically. Josh says those numbers, throw those numbers out the window. When you add centuries of secular humanism, when you add the internet, the pervasiveness of the internet. And then when you throw these things in here, 
when kids get those, you you pretty well have lost them. Josh says that you've got to reach kids by the time they're 12 years old. So particularly in Western countries, and now, you know, these things are in many, many countries. Kids around the world have these things now. I'd say the 8 to 12-year-old range is, is the optimum time. And I'm not – the Holy Spirit can arrest someone at 99 years old. We're not limiting him. But I think that 8 to 12, maybe 14-year range is, is the, the best time to reach young people children and young people. And do you ever have issues with children coming to Christ, having difficulty with families that are not believers? Oh, and yeah. you know, how does like a eight-year-old or 10-year-old kind of handle that situation? Oh, yeah. We see this. We, we get, I mean, if you saw the rest of my office, it's such a mess. You can't even, I can find things. I'm the <laughs> only one that can find things. But <laughs> We get hundreds of testimonies, and we have seen testimonies where I know of one testimony of a a child that was not allowed to go to a Bible club from a a Muslim background, but they would go and listen. They'd put their ear up, and they would listen, and they came to faith in Christ, and they were beaten. They were beaten because of this, and they shared that the beating didn't compare to the joy of knowing Jesus. And so, yeah, we do work in very difficult countries, work in maybe six countries up in the northern part of what we call Sub-Saharan Africa, Mali, Niger. Our country coordinator in Burkina Faso was just beaten and whacked. He needed you. <laughs> His head was cut wide open. He had to get sewed up. But yes, he was beaten and whacked with a machete or something like that. And so we do work in countries where people you know, can be beaten. And very difficult countries, but people are coming to know the Lord and we're having the privilege of helping disciple them and introduce to them the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Well, John Mark, I really appreciate you taking some time. But before we wrap up this episode, I just wanted to leave some time for our manager minute. For our listeners, we are always thinking about the question of how can we best steward God's wealth? And when we have a guest on the show, we love to get some perspective from them on how to answer that question. So, John Mark, do you have any suggestions for how our listeners can answer the question, how do we best steward God's wealth? Yeah, thank you. Great, great question, Cody. A wise man, in fact, my father-in-law, a retired pastor, told me a long time ago when I was trying to woo my beautiful wife that everything we've been given is so we can give to others. And we really can't name anything that we have our, our careers, our minds, our material possessions, the educations we have been given. We cannot name anything that we have that has not been given to us by God. And so I believe we're, we're stewards. I think stewardship is far beyond our money. I think stewardship is our time, our talents, and our resources. And I believe we're to use it to take as many people with us to heaven as possible. I'm told most of people's resources are not in their cash. They're in their, and, and I'm preaching to the choir, Cody. I shouldn't be telling. <laughs> I'm told that most people, that 90% of their wealth is in their non-liquid assets, like land and stocks and bonds. And just recently, I've heard of someone who may be making a large cryptocurrency donation to the Melmos Club. Trust me, we'll take it. We'll take whatever <laughs> God gives us, but... I believe that we're all challenged by the Great Commission 
to constantly take stock of our lives and do exactly what your organization is about to evaluate what you have and need and what can you give away to reach the world for Christ. And so I just appreciate and commend both of you for what you're doing. I think it's incredible. It's almost unheard of these days that we're to live below our means for the sake of the gospel. And I appreciate that. My parents were great examples of that. My dad had a lot of money go through his hands, but if you saw him, you'd never believe it because he lived simply. And those kind of people are my heroes, humanly. Couldn't have said it better myself. Well, John, Mark, as we're getting to the end of our show here today, I did want to give you a chance to tell people how they can get more involved with the Mailbox Club, where they can get more information, and what opportunities there are for people to support what you guys are doing. Absolutely. I would start by going to our website, which is mailboxclub.org. That's mailboxclub.org. You can email us. You can call us. I would welcome the opportunity to help any of your listeners at a local level. Anything we can do to serve to help your listeners and churches be more effective in reaching children and young people in Maryland or Pennsylvania or anywhere in this country or anywhere in this world. Anything we can do to help, we're a phone call away, we're an email away. And I would also invite everybody to either come to our banquet in Georgia, which may not be practical for a lot of people, or to Go online and watch our banquet. We, we're planning to live stream it. It's a fun time. We've got a really sharp young couple coming, planning to come and lead the praise and worship name, Caleb and Kelsey. And then after that, we want to go into the program and really just, just move around the world sharing uh, thrilling stories of what God is doing. And if you can't watch it, we want to log it, store it on our website so people can go back later and watch it. But those are ways that people can get involved. We'd love to help anyone at the local level. We've got to reach kids in this country. I love talking about Afghanistan and South Sudan, but my heart is broken for America. We're in trouble. We have got to get involved at the local level and reach kids. I was just down today in the, the really poor part of town here, and we're trying to launch later this month and in October launch weekly Bibles and the people are they're like begging us to help they just they're crying out for help right here in my town I'm embarrassed right here in my town we want to reach about 70 kids and and begin discipling them and making them peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and helping them with their with their homework you know Acts 1a is not Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria or the ends of the earth it's connected with and 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 so if we can help anyone listen at the local level, we'd love to. And of course, if anyone would like to donate, again, they can go to our website and find different projects to give to. We would appreciate that. Whether somebody helps us reach 500 kids or 50,000 kids, we just appreciate whatever your listening audience would like to do. Thank you both so much. It's been a joy. Well, thank you for joining us, John Mark. This has been a fantastic conversation and just, I think, really eye-opening to think about how the lives of children are so critical to the gospel, making it around the world, and to see what God is doing in and through you guys and the thousands of volunteers that support what you're doing. So thanks for being with us tonight. Hey, to God be the glory. If he can use me, he can, he can use anybody. Thanks so much for listening to the show. 
If you have questions about setting a financial finish line or anything else you heard on the show today, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Send us any questions you have, and we'll answer them on one of our future episodes. As always, if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 30. That's all we have for today. We'll see you next time.